Brian McClanahan Show, episode 238. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. You'll find all my social media buttons at the top of the page. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And those that do enroll do get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. Just check your email after you enroll. And you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I've also got six courses available for purchase there. They're great. If you're a homeschooler, if you're a lifelong learner, whatever it is, you can use those courses. They're fantastic. So go on out and purchase a course that will help support the show as well. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep these lights on if you're watching on YouTube. Help keep the podcast going. You can also purchase book plates there if you want my autograph on my books that you've purchased. You can do that as well, so you can get those there. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Shop. Click on that. It'll take you out. You can get all my Brian McClanahan Show logo apparel or gear, whatever you want to get. You can get stationery, all kinds of cool stuff with that, stickers. So it's a great way to support the show as well, and you can uh, advertise the show. And, of course, always rate this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, that way more people will see it. The higher the ratings, the more it moves up the list. And so that's always a great way to help support the show as well. And share it on social media. Let people know you like the show. Let people know you listen to the show and support the show. That's also a way to gain listeners and, of course, get that think locally, act locally message out there. So it's a uh, it's a win-win. Right. You uh, you show you support the show, and then, of course, we get you get more like-minded people, more friends to uh, listen to the show as well. All right. Let's talk about the topic for the day, and it, it's based on two things. One, an article that was published a few weeks ago now um, on Taiwan and China. And the other is a comment that was made on my YouTube page on one of my podcast episodes that... Um, a person didn't like um, because he thought I was being disingenuous. So anyways, I, I want to get into this idea of legitimacy. And this is actually something I brought up with the um, Michael Malice book review in The New Right. When he talks about democracy is actually a terrible system because you can never, me you can never measure how much support is enough support? I mean, where, he says, you know, where do you draw the line? Is it 60%, 50% participation, 30%, 40%? That's a good question. Um, if only 20% of the voting electorate is actually participating, is that legitimate government? Is that a legitimate election? This is a, this is a good question. We, we looked at, in the Eastern Bloc countries during the Cold War, we had large participation, but we only had one candidate. And that candidate was supported by the military. 
And so it was a Democratic, quote-unquote, election, but it really wasn't much of an election. So how do we measure a legitimacy and how do we measure participation? We know, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez received 2 per, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 2% of the 700,000 people in her district. Only 2% of those people voted for her. And yet here she is in Congress running her mouth on a daily basis, causing all kinds of problems. 2% of 700,000 people voted for her. So that means 98% of the people in her district didn't want her there or didn't think it was important enough to participate. And some polling data now shows that people are tired of her in her district because she blocked the, the Amazon expansion into her district. So maybe she becomes a one-term member of Congress. Who knows? But only 2%. So is 2% enough to say that's legitimate? Is she a legitimate representative of the people of her district in New York? I mean, this is a very good question. I think that we have to look at these things. Of course, as we as we expand the electorate, as we expand who votes, this is something that people back in the 1830s, if you look at the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829-1830, and you look at some of the arguments that were made against expanding the suffrage, these are some of the things that were brought up. I mean, why is it that expanding the suffrage makes it better? In fact, what often happens when you expand suffrage is that you see less liberty uh, because of the fact that you're going to the lowest common denominator. And what I mean by that is let's say you, you expand the suffrage out to, at this point, they're just talking about all white males are going to get the vote. There's going to be no property qualification anymore. Uh, you can just vote if you're a white male. Of course, there's going to be an age qualification. But at that point now, you have you know Joe here and Bill here and their neighbors, and they don't like each other, and they can vote now. And they've got a dispute over something. So Joe agitates for action in the legislature, and then that becomes part of the legislation going forward. And that legislation is a restriction on civil liberties in one way or another. Now, before Joe and Bill could vote, this issue might have been brought forward to their representative. And that representative could say, well, I mean, this is really not, that, this is going to violate civil liberties. We're not going to do it. But now because Joe and Bill have power, and maybe Joe, Joe or Bill is now running for a seat in the state legislature, they have a lot more influence in what goes on. So what you generally see, this is what Charles Sidnor talked about with Virginia. Virginia had more civil liberty with less democracy than South Carolina, which had more democracy but less civil liberty. And generally what you see when you have more democracy, civil liberties wane. Even if you look at Greece, ancient Greece, and you start talking about the uh, Athens, Athens essentially invented ostracism. If they didn't like you, they just boot you out. And how'd they do it? By a vote. So democracy actually led to people being exiled from Athens. Well, you're not welcome here. Vote them out on Ostraka, and you're gone. And it was used against political opponents. Originally, it was used for good intention. We're going to get rid of the tyrants. We're going to get rid of the of the people that are causing political problems. But then it was used, well, we don't like the people of that party. We're just going to get rid of them. They're gone. Now, is that what democracy does? Yes. I mean, can you imagine now if there was a chance for ostracism in the United States, you would have a major agitation to get rid of political opponents all the time. So is that a benefit of democracy? And again, 
How do you measure legitimacy? Now, on the other hand, the counter to that, of course, is monarchy, which creates, as Aristotle pointed out, it creates all kinds of problems as well. Because when you get into hereditary monarchy, you're going to have a situation where the son won't be as good as the father, typically, or the grandson. And we've seen throughout European history that monarchy is also fatally flawed and that it creates despotism. It creates tyrannical government at times. So that's not a good system either. So what Aristotle advocated was a mixed system where you had some forms of democracy, some forms of oligarchy, maybe even a little bit of monarchy. But you had you had this mixed constitution of what the Spartans had, uh, though we're not so clear that the Spartans actually had a written constitution. We know that Lycurgus uh, is held up as this constitution maker, but whether he actually existed or not, I mean, there's some historical questions there. So, But still, this idea of a mixed constitution, Aristotle's politics developing this idea that we have a mixed system where you have various elements of different systems to check each other, that creates a system where you have the best good that can be had in politics. No, no system's ever perfect. You're always going to run into issues, but where you have the best system. Now, you could make a case that even Virginia, where you have limited suffrage, you still have democracy, right? So the expansion of suffrage is the question. Regardless, what is legitimate government? Well, our general definition is government that is supported by the general population. So even if you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and say, okay, she only got 2% of the vote in her district, she is still generally supported by the population. And there's consent. And how do you measure consent? Is consent simply, we're not rebelling against the central authority, we're not rebelling against the state authority, we're paying taxes, we're following the laws generally. Is that held up as consent? Generally it is. So... Uh, this is where you get into these very thorny issues about consent and legitimacy. So I bring this up because of this piece with China and Taiwan and, of course, American examples of this. Now, if you don't know, Taiwan is claimed by China, but the United States says Taiwan is an independent country. The Taiwanese have essentially seceded from China, and China keeps saying, no, no, they're part of China. And every now and then there's a military threat that the Chinese are going to go and reoccupy Taiwan. And if that happens, or if that attempt is made, the United States, through treaty, has to send in the troops and prevent the forceful occupation of Taiwan by China. Now, of course, the irony in that is that the United States was acting like China in the 1860s, and that's not lost on the Chinese, right? So let me read this article. This is about... Taiwan and China. Quote, when it comes to Taiwan, China's generals say they are simply following the example of U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. China's defense minister, Wei Fenghe, on Sunday, invoked Lincoln's efforts during the U.S. Civil War to justify Beijing's approach toward Taiwan, which it sees as an integral part of its territory that must be unified by force if necessary. Quote, American friends told me that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest American president because he led the country to victory in the Civil War and prevented the secession of the U.S., we said on Sunday at the Shangri-La Dialogue, a security conference in Singapore. The U.S. is indiv indivisible. So is China. China must be and will be 
reunified. Tensions over China and Taiwan have increased in recent months, with the U.S. regularly sailing warships through the Taiwan Strait. The Trump administration has defended the moves as demonstrations of free passage allowed by international law, while China sees them as provocations. The U.S. is obligated to sell arms of a defensive character to Taipei under the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act. Trump administration officials have given tacit approval to Taipei's request to buy more than 60 Lockheed Martin Corps F-16s. Bloomberg reported in March, prompting a fresh protest from China. We said that China could find no justifiable reasons for the U.S. to get involved with Taiwan through its domestic law. No attempts to split China shall succeed, he added, adding that, adding that uh, foreign intervention in the Taiwan question is doomed to failure. Now, again, the hypocrisy of American positions is not lost on the Chinese. Now, I had a, a, a friend, or a, a, not a friend, a, a colleague email me not long ago and tell me that the students in China, the, the average Chinese, back in the 80s, he, um, he held an exchange. There was an exchange between the China Chinese and the United States um, for businessmen. And some American businessmen went to, this was in 1984, I think he said, 84. Some Americans went to China, <clears throat> and they're from Texas. And then the following year, 1985, uh, some Chinese uh, businessmen came over. This was a, an exchange. They came over to the United States, and they toured here. And so th- he took them around Dallas, and he took them this, you know, showed them the JFK assassination spot and some other landmarks. And they drove by the now removed Robert E. Lee statue statue in Dallas. And all these Chinese businessmen wanted to do was go look at that statue. And he said the most amazing thing about it to them that was the symbol of America. Robert E. Lee. It was the symbol of America. Why was it the symbol of America? It was the symbol of America because Lee stood in defiance of the Yankees. And they knew a lot about Robert E. Lee. Um, they thought that he really was, he was a great general, a great, a great American. He embodied the American spirit. And I don't know this for a fact, but I heard rumors, and I can't find any images of this, that during the 1989, which is now we're in the 30th anniversary of that, during the 1989 Tiananmen Square demonstration in China, there were students waving Confederate battle flags because they viewed that as a symbol of opposition to central authority. And it makes sense. So here you have the Chinese government saying, no, no, no. We've been told that Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president. We're just acting like Abraham Lincoln with Taiwan, and they're 100% correct about that. They're not lying. The Chinese are acting like Abraham Lincoln in that particular case. So why would the Americans support the Taiwanese when that's like supporting the Confederacy? Well, because American policy is hypocritical. They understand that American uh, American belief in self-determination should be paramount, and that Taiwan represents the American belief in self-determination. What they don't do is follow that same pattern here in the United States. And this gets into that comment that was made on uh, my YouTube page about the Confederacy. The comment was that the Confederacy was an illegitimate government. And as such, Confederate leaders, soldiers, etc., were all traitors. 
because the Confederacy was illegitimate. So this gets into that question of what is legitimate government. Now, I didn't feel like debating the issue with the guy any longer because it's a waste of my time. But this question of legitimacy. Now, how do we measure legitimacy? So let's look at two different American wars. We have the American War for Independence, and we have the War for Southern Independence, also known as the Civil War. It was a war for Southern Independence. No different than the American War for Independence. In the American War for Independence, we think, I mean, Americans run around on July 4th, which is coming up, and they shoot off fireworks, and we celebrate the support for the American War for Independence was maybe about 30 to 40 percent in any given state at any given time during that war. It was a minority, it's believed, for a good part of the war, that a minority of the American population was in favor of independence. We know, for example, when the American crisis was written, when Tom Paine rode back to Philadelphia and he wrote The American Crisis, that the people of Philadelphia were wavering, that Washington's army was wavering, that this particular pamphlet and series of essays did a lot to encourage support for the war because at that point it was probably maybe a quarter of the people of Philadelphia were behind the war, that many people were thinking, we're just going to support the British because, uh, I mean, we don't feel like fighting this war. We know that in New York, when the British occupied New York, you certainly had a minority of the population that was in favor of, the Amer- of independence. But we know that the majority of the people in New York didn't. So when you look at this particular war and you look at different areas, we know there were stronger areas of support and, and weaker areas of support. When you look at the war, we know that, it, I mean, if you want to call any war a civil war, that particular war, you found, I mean, for example, the Battle of Kings Mountain in North Carolina was essentially a war between, a battle between the Patriot forces of North Carolina and the Tory forces of North Carolina. That's all it was. It was, there weren't really any British officers involved in that. No regular army. So it was a real civil war within that state for control of the state itself, not for the central authority, which is what the War for Southern Independence was about, but the state itself. There was a fierce battle for control of the state. Now, that's a real civil war. We know that the Tory forces in many states were fairly substantial, and they were supporting the British. We know, for example, in the northern frontier, when you look at people like Joseph Brandt, he was supported by the Rangers, essentially, in, in New York, these um, militiamen who were New Yorkers going in and attacking on the frontier American settlements. So we know this was the case all throughout the colonies, and yet that war is held up and the American position is held up as legitimate. Why? Because we had a Second Continental Congress that was elected by the several colonies, later states. So the state sent people to this Continental Congress, and it acted as a de facto central authority during the war. We know that all the states, all the state legislatures, 
drafted constitutions, not all were ratified by the people, but the state legislatures acting as a voice of the people of the states created new constitutions and gave their assent to this war for independence, a declaration of independence. And we consider that to be legitimate. Did the British consider the war to be legitimate? No. Did the British consider the, century, the, the, the Continental Congress to be legitimate? No. Did the British consider these state legislatures who had voted for independence to be legitimate? No. They didn't consider any of that. They thought all of this was illegal. All of it was illegitimate. An illegitimate government. And no one can ever answer that question and say, well, I mean, the answer to that is, well, they won the war. So they became legitimate. Or that the French recognized American independence, and so that made them legitimate. Now, so is recognition the only thing that makes a government legitimate? No. We know that what makes a government legitimate in our particular model, in the way we view government, is support from the people. So even in the American War for Independence, where you had, at a time, 30, maybe 40, maybe approaching 50% in some areas, or maybe over 50% in some areas, but we know in a lot of areas it was less, that that government is considered legitimate. And we celebrate with fireworks and ball games and hot dogs and all kinds of things. And here we are. 200 plus years later, with a legitimate government because uh, at the time people supported that. Now, what about the U.S. Constitution? Is that a legitimate document? We know that the Articles of Confederation was ratified unanimously by every state, and that put it into effect. And it said that it could not be changed unless it was changed by every state. But we know in the U.S. Constitution that wasn't required. All you needed were nine states to change the document, 9 out of 13. Did that make the document legitimate for all the rest? We know that they eventually all ratified, but did that make it legitimate? How was that document ratified? It was ratified in conventions of the people, so the convention became the model for legitimacy. That's an important point to make. So the Americans developed this convention system. You had the state legislatures call for delegates to a convention which became the voice of the people of the states. So the people of the states, as it was said in 1787 and 1788, became the legitimate voice of the people. And in those conventions, you had nine states and eventually 13 states ratify that U.S. Constitution. So it, be, it was legitimate because the conventions of the people of the states ratified the Constitution in convention, not the state legislatures, but the conventions of the states. So it still was the states operating here, but it was the people of the state deciding in convention. And you had this public argument made in the press made through pamphlets, made in debates at these conventions about what the Constitution would mean, how it would be enforced, how it would be, how the Congress, what the powers of the Congress, what the powers of the presidency were, the, the federal court system, all these things were debated. That's important to understand. So we had a convention then ratify the U.S., these conventions ratify the U.S. Constitution, not one convention, but several conventions ratify this U.S. Constitution. And we know that when state constitutions were altered or rewritten, we had conventions 
ratify those as well. So the conventions, this is where I was talking about Virginia in 1829, 1830, that was a convention that would draft a constitution and ratify it, a convention of the people of Virginia, which included some of the, I mean, three ex-presidents, John Marshall, Supreme Court Chief Justice, I mean, future congressmen, uh, future members of the presidential cabinets, future senators. I mean, this was an august body of men, but it was a convention of the people. These were the people that were elected by the people. It wasn't the state legislature that sat and did this. This was a convention of the people. So that had the voice of legitimacy. So fast forward to 1860 and 1861. How did the South, how did the Southern states secede from the Union? Well, they did so through conventions, the same conventions that ratified the U.S. Constitution. So the people of the states decided that the U.S. Constitution was no longer, no longer in effect in their state and that they were seceding from the Union. And through a convention, they created a new central authority called the Confederate States of America. Through conventions of the states, this new constitution was ratified in the same method. So that, if we say that the constitution is legitimate, if we say that the United States is legitimate in 1776, or 1770s, didn't even have the Articles of Confederation yet, but yet, we're saying this government's legitimate. We're saying all these state governments are legitimate. If we're saying these are legitimate because barely 50% of the people supported the American War for Independence, and we know that in many of these states, it was barely 50% of the convention ratified the Constitution. But when you get to 1860 and 61, this is now no longer legitimate. When we know that in South Carolina, it was unanimous in the convention to leave the Union. We know that in most states, the majority was crushing 70 plus percent of the people of the conventions voted to secede from the Union. Is that legitimacy? Well, I think so, because you're seeing the people of the state say, we're out. We're going to, we're not we're no longer abiding by that government, that central authority. We're going to abide by this central authority because this is where we give our consent. We no longer consent to that one. We consent to this one. Now, the U.S. government would say, well, that's not legitimate. The morons on YouTube would say, that's not legitimate. They don't, they, the hypocrisy of their position, the inconsistencies of their position are so glaring that they, there really is no response to this. But this is what they do. Well, so Southerners were traitors. Why? Why were they traitors? Because they can't be. They're giving their consent to something else because the will of the people of the state said, we're now a different country. This is how the United Nations even defines self-determination and legitimacy to this day. This is how the United States defines it with Taiwan. The Chinese recognize that, well, you all are a bunch of hypocrites because in 1861 you said that doesn't matter. If you, these people can't have independence, we're just going to send in the army and crush them. So they can have self-determination. Even though crushing majorities of the people of the southern states said that we, don't, we no longer give our consent to that central authority in Washington, we give our consent to that central authority in Montgomery and then later Richmond. That's where we give our consent for a central authority. They always gave their, I mean, 
we look at the states. And so we had these political designations of states. Those things matter. Those borders matter. There's a reason why they're called states and not counties or provinces or shires. They're called states because they were sovereign political entities. As Jefferson said in the Declaration, the state of Great Britain is equal to the state of Virginia, the state of Massachusetts, the state of South Carolina, the state of Maryland, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of New York, the state of Great Britain. This is, I mean, once you get political states in that term that has meaning, it didn't have a different meaning in 1776. It didn't have a different meaning in 1860 or 61. Now, after the war, you could say, well, it has a different meaning because the war crushed any semblance of the meaning of a state. Now we just think these things are counties or provinces or shires. That's all they are. But that wasn't the case when Southerners decided through popularly elected conventions to leave the Union in the same method they agreed to be in the Union. They formed a new Union. Just as Jefferson said we're doing in 1776. They formed a new government. That is the American principle of self-determination and the American principle of consent and legitimacy. So to run around saying that the U.S., that the Confederate states were illegitimate is to ignore all of American history and to simply say, well, I just don't, because they lost the war. Oh, okay, but they lost the war, so they're traitors. That's not the way it works. They lost the war, but they weren't wrong Legally, they were not traitors. They were not illegitimate. They, in fact, were following the basis of American government. And this same guy said, well, what would you think of a foreign power occupied uh, uh, the, the, the United States? I'm sure you would have a different opinion. Southerners were not a foreign power. Southerners were Americans. This was their state. It's not like another country, the British came in and occupied something and then said, okay, this is ours. That's not what happened. This was their state. It's not a foreign power. It doesn't, the analogy doesn't even work. So this is, this is the uh, very close-minded, anti-American, an, frankly, anti-intellectual position of the illegitimate argument. Um, it doesn't doesn't even work. It doesn't it doesn't pass any kind of test when it comes to American principles of government and society. So, I wanted to address that because you had this piece where where China is more understands American history better than and the hypocrisy of American history better than most Americans. So I wonder if you know if this individual would support. Taiwanese would say, no, that's part of China. They should be able to occupy that. Would he have supported Kuwait? Or would he have supported Saddam Hussein? Because Saddam Hussein was saying, Kuwait's been part of ours. We're just going to reoccupy it. So who's right in that? The United States certainly said Saddam Hussein was wrong. We're going to support, I mean, we know there are other reasons here. But ostensibly on the surface, we're going to support Kuwait because it's being occupied by a foreign power, central authority. I mean, all of this is all the hypocrisy of American history is not lost on other people. It's just lost on people in the United States who seem to be blind to this or maybe brain dead when it comes to this. I don't know which one is is more accurate. So when people bring up this illegitimate, it's illegitimate. Why is it illegitimate? I mean, ask them about it. See what they can. Well, because you had a U.S. Uh, oh, the other argument, of course, is that the 
the Union failed, as Thomas Jefferson said this, so the Union would fail to exist. Why? Did the Union fail to exist in 1861? Um, that's really an interesting argument because they certainly had an army and a navy and a government and financial houses and a court. Supreme Court still existed. President Lincoln was still there. Congress was still in session. All the southern, all the northern states still had representatives. You still had all the state governments. You still, had, I mean, everything went went right along in the north. So, did the union cease to exist? Well, uh, but then that would have given other states the ability to leave the union. Okay, that's self determination. I mean, if the states wanted to leave, which probably, I mean, you could have made a case maybe. Some of the Western states might have looked at this. as, And Jefferson actually agreed with that as well. He thought there would be a day that the Western states would actually not be part of the original Union any longer. They would become sister states and an empire of liberty. This is where he was getting into that. Not necessarily part of the same central authority, but an empire of liberty that would roll around the globe. So liberty would be, I mean, think the United States would govern the world. But you would have sister states, even in North America, that would be interested in the same principles. And so these arguments that are made are so weak. They're so weak based on American history and the Anglo-American political tradition that they don't even make any sense. And yet, they're the ones that are now being bantered about on social media and uh, on uh, major leftist publications, even neoconservative publications, about the legitimacy of the South. It was an alien, the enemy. Just not true. Robert E. Lee wasn't a traitor. Robert E. Lee was following the dictate of his state, the people of his state, and he refused to uh, support a central authority that was going to coerce the people of his state, who through a popularly-led convention left the Union. Why is irrelevant? They did it. And so it doesn't I mean that's the other, well, but these people did it for bad reasons. So that becomes illegitimate. I mean, the British said that every single one of the 13 states was seceding to preserve slavery. So do we believe that? Do we agree with that? That's why they seceded from the British Empire to preserve slavery. We know in two cases, Virginia and New York, the, uh, the military authorities there had an emancipation proclamation, essentially, making the war about slavery in, 17, in the 1770s. So is that the case? I mean, was the war about slavery in 1776? The British said it was. We don't say it was. So this is where you get into all these different arguments. And I think that um, this piece is fantastic. This little tiny piece is fantastic because China, the Chinese are just giving it to the United States there. Um, and I, I mean, look, if we're going to support the Taiwanese, then we support any other self-determination movement in the United States even as well. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed. Of course, I get into all this in my course on secession. If you pick that up at McClanahan Academy, I go through all of this in detail. Um, on the course that I have on the war, I go through this. Um, so I've got a couple of really great courses on that, and uh, you should get them, right? I mean, it's they're, they're fantastic. Uh, a great way to, um, to uh, enhance your knowledge of this particular topic when you go onto YouTube and you can argue with people that don't really know anything about it. All right. Well, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain. Show.